Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Monday, February 12th. I'm Hannah Floor. The largest grocery store in Petersburg was named Retailer of the Year by the Independent Grocers Alliance, or IGA, which is an international chain of independent grocery stores. Hammer and Weekon was chosen above thousands of other grocers around the country. KFSK's Shelby Herbert has more from the award ceremony, which took place right in the middle of the store's produce aisle. Dozens of Hammer and Weekon employees huddle together for a quick photo in their uniforms next to Independent Grocers Alliance executives in suits and ties. They're crowded right next to a crate of oranges. Couple people over here. As the camera flashes die down, shopping traffic resumes. John Ross is the CEO of IGA. He steps forward as customers weave past the group with their carts. So I've got a question for the team here, which is how many IGA stores are there in the world? 6,500. All of those stores out of 6,500, only nine stores were this Wow. You guys have won this award. Ross says the Petersburg store received top ratings for customer service and community involvement. Having a beautiful and a clean store, so respect for everyone, does it sound like you guys? That's the criteria for this award. It's family businesses serving our community as if they were our own family. So it's with great pride that IGA presents this store with the 2024 Retailer of the Year. Ross then gives a commemorative plaque and a check to Hammer and Weekon CEO Jim Floyd. Floyd turns to his team and says it's not actually his award. The store has struggled with supply chain disruptions, product shortages, and infrastructural challenges in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. He thanked his staff for their stalwart service. This is not my award, this is your award. It's been a very much a privilege to be here this last four years and uh, dealing with a wonderful team. And all the things that we went through through COVID and uh, providing essential needs to our community. So thank you. This is about you guys. Floyd hands the plaque to his assistant store manager, Terry Falter, as the group gets back in position for more photos. Falter has worked at the store for almost a decade. If it wasn't for the team, we wouldn't be here right now because we have a good team behind us, and that's what makes the store run. So is the good people behind you, underneath you. And in front of them is a blowout party. Floyd says he plans to match the prize money out of his own pocket and spend it on a party to celebrate his staff's hard work. From the produce aisle in Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. Since the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium closed its Medicare-certified home health department in Sicka last September, many Sickens have publicly opposed the change. Through a petition with over 600 signatures and a well-attended listening session in November, which Search did not attend. Last week, for the first time since the closure, community members shared feedback directly with Search administrators. But as Meredith Reddick reports, that feedback is unlikely to bring the department back. Cindy Littman was one of 15 Sitkins who testified at Wednesday's meeting of the Community Health Council, which advises Search on how to best serve the Sitka community. I'm grieved that Search closed its its Medicare certified home health office. My husband, Tony Gavon, was the beneficiary of Medicare certified home health services from 2017 until his death in 2019. It's only through the unique skills and services of home health that we were able to remain in Sitka 
and that Tony was able to stay at home for the last two years of his life. Nearly all of the testimony focused on the closure of Sitka's Medicare-certified home health department last fall, while Search has maintained that the new home-based care program offers equivalent services. Littman and many others testifying said they're not the same. I really don't know whether Search really doesn't understand the difference between Medicare-certified home health and um, and the health care, the home health they're offering through the clinic, or if they really are deliberately being untruthful. Wednesday's meeting represented the community's annual opportunity to share feedback directly with Search. That meeting is written into the charter developed when Search acquired Sitka Community Hospital in 2019. It requires that, quote, a portion of the council meeting is open to the general public for its input. Some community members felt that the meeting's structure, which was virtual and limited testimony to 15 Sitkins for three minutes each, didn't fulfill the spirit of that requirement. In her testimony, Chris Ann Rice said the Zoom format specifically prevented some Sitkins from attending. I'm on a Zoom meeting on an iPhone, sitting by myself, Jim's upstairs, person number 14 out of 15, reading my notes to provide testimony to you about services in Sitka. Your customers are restricted to a once a year opportunity to share concerns. I have the technology and some of the skills to Zoom, but I know people in Sitka, some and thus you've eliminated them. Other audience members took to the chat after the council spent nearly half an hour responding to the first three minute testimony. Community member Lisa Bush wrote, quote, if this is the only time during the whole year that only 15 members of the public has to speak, it might be best for the committee to listen and save time for the public comment. A few minutes later, the chat was disabled, and another community member asked organizers to reopen the chat. Excuse me. Galen? Yeah, the host uh, just muted my audio. The chat has been oh. um, disabled. I wonder if oh, somebody okay. could enable it again, please. Over the course of the two-hour meeting, community members echoed many of the sentiments expressed at the November forum hosted by the Sitka Women's Club, namely that home health had provided critically important services to their families and that the new home-based care program would not fill the same niche. In spite of ongoing public pressure, Search has shown no interest in revisiting its decision. Council member Susan Padilla, who was appointed to the council in the same meeting, asked Search Chief Medical Officer Elliot Brule whether reinstating the home health department was on the table, given community input. You know, with some of the communications and, you know, all of the, the signatures and everything, has any thought been given to that to say, uh, Maybe the community really wants a home a home health department. Uh, is yeah, that a thought? Not at this time. In Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick. The U.S. Forest Service issued a proposal early this month that would allow Hecla Greens Creek Mine to expand its waste storage facility and continue operations for up to 18 years. The mine's existing tailings facility on Admiralty Island stores ground rock and other waste left over from the mining of silver, lead, and zinc. But that facility could run out of space as soon as next year. The Forest Service proposal would allow for an additional 5 million cubic yards of waste storage. That's the equivalent of about 1,500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. But regional geologist Matthew Reese, who manages the expansion project for the Forest Service, 
says the decision is not yet final. The objection period will be open for 45 days for folks who have previously commented um, to object to the decision. Because the mine operates within Admiralty Island National Monument, it must go through a strict environmental review process. The final round of public participation will end on March 19th. The review process for the Greens Creek expansion began nearly four years ago, and Reese says there have been many comments from people concerned about potential harm to the environment. In particular, some environmentalists have raised concerns about contamination linked to fugitive dust or fine particles of ground rock laced with toxic metals like lead. They called for more measures to prevent that dust from blowing out of the tailings facility and into the environment. Reese says the new proposal addresses those concerns. We heard pretty loud and clear from the public during that process that they would like to see that plan, and so that has been included. Apart from that, there were a lot of uh, requests about additional biological monitoring and some additional water quality monitoring. So we've included a number of additional mitigations. The project would be constructed in two phases to allow for the additional monitoring. After phase one is completed, nearby creeks and lichen would be tested for fugitive dust contamination before the second phase of construction proceeds. On Alaska's Head Start opened its second class for three to five-year-olds in January. Sophia Stewart-Razi reports the new class could be a big help to parents on the island where childcare can be tough to come by. Daisy Perit is the lead teacher for Unalaska's Head Start class. She's going over manners with her students before they play with toys and do other classroom activities. And this keep us safe here inside the school. Any question? No. No. Okay. Thank you for listening. Okay. Perit, who taught elementary school in the Philippines for several years, has worked at the Head Start in Unalaska for the past five years as a teacher aide. And she's thrilled about the second classroom opening. Yeah, we're so excited. We're so excited that this is finally open. Finding childcare for kids under five years old in Unalaska can be a challenge. There are only two options for preschool, Eagles View Elementary School and Head Start, which is run by the Aleutian Pribilof Islands Association, a regional nonprofit organization. Preet says the second Head Start classroom will alleviate the lack of childcare for local kids who aren't old enough for primary school. This class will run for half days while the first Head Start preschool class is a full day program. She says a school bus service will be provided to students as well. Here in Dutch Harbor, a lot of people, a lot of families, parents are working. So they're really struggling and it's like a big really for them. Currently, there are six kids enrolled in the new Head Start classroom, but there's room for up to 20. Preet says there are future plans that include adding more classrooms at different times and for younger children. In Unalaska, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi. An artistic collective based in New York City and Ketchikan, Alaska, called New Red Order, was recently awarded a United States Arts Fellowship. The collective is the brainchild of Finca artist Stefan Jackson, who uses the artist name Jackson Paulus, and brothers and Ojibwe artist Adam and Zach Khalil. A spokesperson for the United States Artist, which funds the fellowship, says the award is, quote, dedicated to artist communities and building upon shared legacies through artistic innovation, 
cultural stewardship, and multifaceted storytelling, unquote. Jackson was born and raised in Kajikan and grew up carving with his father, the prolific Klinga artist Nathan Jackson. Stephen Jackson said in a New York Times article last year that a goal of the New Red Order is to examine the public relationship to indigenous identity and cultural performance as a way to expand indigenous agency and build a future not rooted in colonial perspectives. The trio held an exhibition's ex- exhibition in Queens, New York, inspired by the World's Fair, called The World's Unfair, and featuring carnival-themed exhibits that tackled issues of appropriate, appropriation and fetishization of indigenous cultures. The group's work has also been featured worldwide, including in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, Sundance Film Festival in Utah, and the Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin. Alaska Lieutenant Governor Nancy Dahlstrom is reaping the benefit of having the U.S. House Speaker on her side as she runs for Congress. Dahlstrom raised $200,000 in a little more than six weeks. She announced in November that she's challenging Democratic Congresswoman Mary Peltola, and then groups affiliated with the House Speaker Mike Johnson began fundraising for her. Most of her total comes from political action committees linked to Johnson and other Republicans in the U.S. House. Only 15% of Dahlstrom's total came from individuals. That's an unusual fundraising profile defined on the first campaign finance report of a challenger like Dahlstrom. The support of so many high-level Republican PACs is significant because they have deep pockets and hold sway over a larger Republican fundraising network. Dahlstrom's report covers a short period from when Dahlstrom launched her campaign in mid-November through the end of the year. The House Speaker selected Dahlstrom over the other Republican in the race, Nick Begich III. Begich has been in the race since July. His report for the last three months of the year shows he raised $126,000. That's a bit less than he spent that quarter. Many of his donations are in small amounts from people all over the country who use a Republican payment processing company called Win Red. Begich also ran for Alaska's sole U.S. House seat in 2022, largely using his own funds. Peltola raised more than a million dollars in the last quarter of 2023. Her third quarter report reflects the advantages of incumbency and the fact that Democrats want to invest in the race. Her total includes thousands of small donations from around the country made through Act Blue, the Democratic version of Win Red. Peltola also got contributions from political action committees associated with unions, industries, abortions, abortion rights groups, and others hoping to win back a Democratic House majority. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor.